Today is uh, Shabbat Hagadol, uh, the Great Sabbath, and uh, uh, it's very interesting. I've been reading uh, lately a number of books about uh, Judaism in the Middle Ages, and uh, the relationship, the very interesting back and forth relationship uh, between the Judaism and, and Christianity in terms of rites, symbols, and things of that nature. Uh, and uh, it's, it's interesting that this Shabbat is called the Great Sabbath. Now I know you're thinking, is this the same thing that's in the, the Gospel of John? No, it's not the same thing. But uh, it is interesting that before the Middle Ages, this, this uh, you know, a lot of Jewish traditions come from that period of time, from the uh, late uh, first millennium and then the beginning of the second millennium there. Uh, and this uh, day, the Great Sabbath, uh, came from sometime in that period of time, and that's just kind of interesting. The tradition is, is that on this Sabbath, uh, there's uh, a teaching given about Passover and what it means and preparation for it, and there is also a, a laid upon that kind of tradition that this was the day, perhaps, uh, uh, although... Uh, uh, I'll just say, the day that symbolizes the, uh, uh, the 10th of the month of Nisan, of taking the, uh, taking the lamb, whenever the Shabbat prior to uh, Passover is, uh, whether it's actually that day or not, it isn't that day, but uh, it symbolizes that day, sort of the, the beginning of that uh, process. Kind of like, uh, you know, in the uh, traditional Christian world, there is a week that begins with what's called Palm Sunday, right? And there's like this week of, uh, of uh, walking through the last week of Yeshua's life. You know, this week leading up to Passover is, uh, has a, a kind of interesting uh, a parallels to that kind of thing, where the celebration of Passover begins before Passover, where I, I, we begin today and we begin to think about what Passover means, and, and also, of course, if you're preparing for a Seder, uh, you know that a lot of preparation goes into that. So in many families, there's the exchanging of uh, dishes, right? And uh, certainly some of you remember that. I remember that. Oh, man, it was, it was uh, quite an event. Uh, uh, I have very fond memories growing up every single year from as early as I can remember of my uh, uh, mother and father taking everything out of the kitchen. They didn't have you know, like two uh, ovens and two sinks and all that, but uh, two sets of everything, right, for dairy and for meat, and would all come out of the cupboards and into boxes. And my father was working like a slave in Egypt, I'll tell you, uh, uh, getting everything out of the attic. And we had these old dishes, some of which are still in my basement, but that's another story. Uh, uh, the, for Passover, uh, two other sets of dishes and pots and pans and all, and all of that. So, uh, and then going to the butcher where I lived, the supermarket was not yet um, uh, ready for kosher for Passover food. So we used to have to go to the butcher, right? And this is where he made, uh, the butcher made a killing at Passover, okay? Because he had everything. Not, I mean, not just uh, the meat, and that. He had, that's where you'd buy the matzah, that's where you'd buy uh, the, uh, those fruit little uh, smiley face uh, 
things that have that white filling in it. You know what I'm talking about? Right, you know? That's where you'd buy the macaroons. That's where you'd buy all that stuff. And, and of course, someone like me, you know, the macaroons and, and the matzah and the different kinds of candy and all. Oh, this was, this was great, right? And then, of course, all that preparation was great. Then, then uh, getting rid of all the bread, right? All the leavened bread. That's all gone. And we would take it to the synagogue. Uh, and they would burn it up, actually. Uh, some people, uh, I, you know, you can sell it, uh, you know, to your Italian or Irish neighbors, right? The reason I say Italian or Irish neighbors is because if you're Jewish, at least in those days when you grew up, your neighbors were Irish or Italian, all right? Uh, at least where I grew up. And, uh, and, and so, uh, you know, but symbolically for a penny or a dime, you know, so that you don't own it anymore, we would bring it to the synagogue and it'd be burned. Uh, the burning, burning of the chametz it was a big deal. Uh, and, uh, and so there's no, uh, you know, no bread, no uh, uh, bread of any kind. And then uh, uh, just before the Seder, uh, I would uh, go around the house uh, and search for leaven, right? That was like a traditional thing you do. You search for leaven. So my mother would put out breadcrumbs and like hide it in different places. It was kind of like, it was like a, a double, uh, double fun because later on it was looking for the Afi Komen, right? But, he, but, it, but now, before the Seder, uh, looking for the chametz, looking for the, uh, uh, the leaven. And so uh, she, there would be a little bit and we'd find it and then just throw it away, you know? So we could say that the house has been cleansed uh, uh, from leaven. And then we sit down uh, to the Seder. And as a little kid, I will say that is where the fun kind of drained right out of me, okay? Uh, because uh, when I was little, we would start, we, first we had to start after the sun went down. And God forbid it was daylight savings time, okay? That's serious, because you don't eat until like midnight, literally. I mean, a little, uh, I'm not kidding, you know? Uh, and squirming. I can remember sitting on this wooden chair in my grandparents' house. Woo! But it all led up to this great meal and great memories of childhood and rich, rich memories of family. Uh, I, could, I could go on and on, which I am. Uh, so I'll say I could go on and on and on, but I'll leave the last on off for now, okay? All right. Uh, but I did want to talk to us today uh, about Passover, about what it means, what's, what we're doing there. You know, when we celebrate the Seder, uh, really, it's kind of like a play that we're reenacting. We begin with being slaves in Egypt at the Seder, and then we end with being redeemed and crossing through the sea on dry ground, and we sing songs at the end. And so uh, we uh, participate by the readings that we do, uh, you know, uh, perhaps at home, going around the table, you know, and everybody participating in that way, and then eating foods that reminds us of the bitterness of the slavery and the sweetness of the redemption and pointing out things. I believe that one of the reasons that the Passover Seder is so special in people's lives, especially, uh, or I shouldn't say especially, including uh, Christians, who only have experienced it as adults in a, you know, in a messianic context. I, like I will tell you, I have celebrated Passover more times in my life 
than anybody in my family combined. Uh, from speaking in places, and, you know, different churches and different venues, and woof, I, I, it's amazing. But one thing about Passover, it's always the same. Oh, wow, I never knew all that. That's really interesting. Passover is the kind of teaching that teaches itself. And why is it that people enjoy it so much? I'm going to suggest that it's because we're using almost all of our senses in experiencing this. What we hear, what we see, what we smell, what we taste, you know? Uh, it's amazing. We're like enveloped uh, in the experience when we celebrate Passover because we're participating, see? And so in a way, it's kind of like a play. I thought to myself a few weeks ago, this is how I, this is how I was talking to our elementary school, our junior congregation kids, but in Hebrew school on Sunday, about it's like a play. The whole thing's like a play, and isn't it great to participate in a play? Then I thought, wouldn't it be interesting some year at our Seder to have little vignettes along the way, you know? Good, I got the idea, now I need somebody else to make it happen. Okay, but that would really be, uh, you know, really bring us all, uh, bring us all into it. Uh, and, um, uh, and so in this reenactment of going into slavery, being slaves, coming out of Egypt, you'll hear all about it. I hope you'll all be at our Seder uh, on the second night of Passover on Saturday night the 23rd. Hope you'll be there uh, because we'll talk about all those different elements and what they mean. Uh, but in the big scheme of things, one of the phrases that's in the Talmud uh, that, um, that identifies what's going on at the Seder uh, and that uh, is uh, sort of in Jewish religious parlance uh, about Passover is that we move from shame to praise. What's happening at the Seder? We move from shame to praise. Uh, and that is really uh, a very, very interesting, very way, very interesting way uh, to uh, to articulate that. Now, at the seder, when we actually uh, get to the part of retelling the story, we begin. There are two themes that are in the Haggadah, uh, and one begins with "We were slaves," and the other one begins "We were idolaters." We were slaves. We were idolaters, okay? Uh, and so there is a physical aspect of beginning in shame, that is being a slave in Egypt. And there is a spiritual sense of shame, and that is being idolaters, okay? Uh, and so it begins with uh, where we were, and it moves forward to understanding this redemption. So when we celebrate uh, the Seder, we're remembering the past, we're remembering uh, who we are uh, as, Isra as Jewish people, who we are as Israelites, who we, who we are as Jewish people, and recognizing what God has done with us as a people, right? Uh, and then there is, uh, you know, if we're not Jewish, our identity as Messianic followers of Messiah. We remember what, what God has done for us. Uh, so whether we're talking about being redeemed from Egypt or redeemed from the bondage of sin when Yeshua died, we're remembering where we come from and we're remembering our identity. You know, that is very strong in the first cup, by the way. The first cup, the Kiddush, uh, I will bring you out. It, rem it reminds us who we are. Like it, 
reminds us why we're even here, that we are called out people, whether we are called out as Jews or on top of that as Messiah followers, that there is a calling on our lives. And so we begin the Seder by not just sitting down and having the first cup, but we're being reminded who we are. Uh, and again, like I said, at the Seder, we'll, we will uh, we'll talk about that. Then uh, there is remembering uh, not only who we are in terms of what God has done for us historically in the past, but also in the present, that we face plenty of maror in our own lives today. And when we talk about being redeemed from shame to praise, we face uh, uh, oftentimes in our lives, nobody gets away. Nobody, nobody uh, gets away without maror. Nobody gets away without bitterness. Nobody gets away without the horseradish of life. Nobody gets away without shame. Nobody. Doesn't matter how often on Shabbat people are smiling or say praise the Lord or seem to have their act together. There is no, nobody, unless you're not human. If there's anyone here who is not human, you know, raise your hand and we'll, we'll deal with it. Okay? But um, uh, if you are a human being, there are moments in life where we experience shame for varieties of reasons, wrong or right. Okay? Okay? But then there is also the sweetness of deliverance, the sweetness of redemption. Now, as Messiah followers, there is first the kickoff moment, the moment of moving from shame to praise, of knowing the Lord, I've been, I've been delivered from my sins and I have new life in Messiah Yeshua. But then we soon come to learn that I'm still me and I'm still affected by things in this world. And there are moments when I sin and I feel really guilty and I may suffer the consequences of that that may bring shame upon me. Or perhaps we're, we experience something that just simply happens to us and shame is placed upon us. See? When we know that when we go to the Lord, though, no matter what people may think, we are not only forgiven, but we are cleansed. Cleansed. Cleansed is a very powerful word. Again, in our Torah study, we're going to talk all about it. About what We talked about it last week. We talk about it again this week. About uh, how people in ancient Israel, uh, for uh, physical reasons were placed outside of the camp, right? But then were brought back in. But we're going to learn in a few minutes that when Messiah came, he changed the economy. Didn't change the Torah, but he changed the economy. He changed the way that we relate to him. Obviously, we don't do sacrifices anymore, right? Uh, because of Yeshua's death and resurrection. But there's something else, as we'll see, we don't do anymore either. Okay, uh, And then there is, of course, the part of the Seder where we remember the future, where we look forward to the future. You know, when we open the door for Elijah, hope for the, the consummation, the ultimate future redemption. You know, when there's no more wars and no more sin and no more sadness and, and no more suffering and, 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 and all of that. And so the Seder has all of that wrapped into one. Uh, our past, our present, and our and, uh, and our, uh, our future, okay? But this issue of moving from shame to praise uh, is, I think, very, very timely and very important uh, uh, to us. The rabbis, I think, were really onto something. First of all, because you read it in the Bible uh, about shame. 
Now, I, without going into all the details, I, I, there's a lot we could say about cultures in the world, in the past especially, but also today, uh, a shame culture where, where when one does not conform to the norm, there is shame brought upon them, as opposed to what we might call a guilt culture, whereas when it doesn't matter if we conform or not, but we know that we're guilty of something, that brings upon us, you know, uh, the judgment or, or the, the, sense of, uh, the sense of guilt, and we confess it to God. But the point uh, for us is that we live in a world where shame and humiliation come, sadly, uh, uh, so much uh, on a regular basis in varieties of ways upon us, and especially, boy, our young people. But in the Bible, we read about shame and humiliation going all the way back to the beginning with Adam and Eve, right? Uh, when they, uh, they had sinned, and they knew they were naked, and they hid. They were shamed. But you see, the marvelous thing about God is, while he was angry with them, and while they had to suffer the consequences of their sin, they had to leave the garden, and we all suffer that consequence, God did not do away with them. God did not say, okay, I'm going to erase mankind. I'm going to start over. Nope, he did not start over. He dealt with them as they were. Uh, and the whole story of the Bible is about the story of redemption and the story of deliverance and the story of atonement. And so sin can bring shame upon us, but you see, the wonderful thing is, is that God is a God of restoration, you see? Now, so like I said, uh, we read about shame in a lot of places in the Bible. God uh, does, does uh, uh, help us in this. And when he reminds the Jewish people about his relationship with them, he says things like this. In uh, chapter uh, 32 of uh, Deuteronomy, you know, in verse 10, he says, He found him in a desert, uh, in a desert land, and in the howling waste of a wilderness. He encircled him, he cared for him, he guarded him as the apple of his eye. In other words, we were, we were nothing. We were nothing, and God redeemed us and, and, and saved us. In a very important passage in, um, uh, in the story of Passover, that is also with Deuteronomy chapter 26. We may not realize it, but Deuteronomy chapter 26 is a key passage in the Haggadah. It is commentary, with the, the bulk of the Haggadah, the bulk of it, the bulk of the retelling of the story is told from the point of view of Deuteronomy chapter 26. If you're not aware of that. Beginning in verse 5, in the middle of the verse. My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down to Egypt and sojourned there, few in number. This is understood by uh, the ancient sages this is the beginning, okay? We sojourned in Egypt. We were slaves, but we were also idolaters. And so we, start, we started with shame. And we move forward, uh, indeed, to praise. Uh, in Ezekiel chapter uh, 20, that is a passage. It's, the word for Ezekiel 20 is relentless. That uh, here, this is a... Uh, 
a tremendous moment of God confronting the Israelites uh, and, uh, and speaking uh, this word to them. Now it came about in the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth of the month, that certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, Thus says uh, the Lord God, Do you come to inquire of me? As I live, declares the Lord, I will not be inquired by you. Will you judge them? Will you judge them, son of man? Make them know the abominations of their fathers. Now he's going to go to town on this. And say to them, thus says the Lord God, in the day when I chose Israel and swore to the descendants of the house of Jacob and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, when I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God, on that day I swore to bring them to bring them out from the land of Egypt into a land that I had selected for them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all the lands. And I said to them, Cast away each of you the detestable things of his eyes, and do not defile yourselves with idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. They did not cast away the detestable things of their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them, to accomplish my anger against them in the land, in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profane in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them, bringing them into the land of Egypt. Now, he's going to go on and on in this chapter and say, but then they rebelled against me again, but, I, but for the sake of my name I delivered them. And then they rebelled against me again, and for the sake of my name I delivered them uh, again and again and again. In the book of Daniel, in the ninth chapter, in the eighth verse, Daniel has this tremendous prayer. He realizes that the Babylonian captivity is about to end, and he offers this great prayer uh, of confession. And he says this in the uh, eighth verse Open shame belongs to us, O Lord to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. So he says, open shame uh, belongs to us. And certainly, sin uh, uh, brought shame upon an individual, uh, and oftentimes upon the community uh, itself. And in the Torah, in this week's Torah portion, it is a, it's a fascinating uh, passage. We'll talk more about it in our Torah study about, again, what's going on there. Uh, but people would be separated from the community, and one can only imagine what that must have felt like, you know, to be uh, uh, separated because of, of uh, physical issues. And then the priest would go and he would examine them, and after a certain uh, length of time and so on, they could be reintroduced back into the, back into the community. Now, certainly, uh, that is not how we practice uh, uh, today at all. However, the understanding is, is that there were underlying issues uh, uh, of, of sin and that it was a paradigm for you know, dealing with those things. It's interesting, and I wrote uh, this very briefly, in our uh, Darash for this week, that it's interesting that in the life of Yeshua, these issues, two in particular, that uh, separated people from the community, one had to do with hemorrhaging, 
and uh, uh, blood coming out of the body, and the other one had to do with skin disease. Normally, those people, uh, 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 anybody that came into contact with them would be contaminated. I won't take the time to read the passages. You can read them because I wrote them in the dirage that you received in the email from Mark chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 8. And it's interesting that Yeshua doesn't, is not contaminated, but he brings cleansing and healing to them. What a paradigm of what the Messiah did. In addition to what we read in the uh, New Covenant portion today, that he brings forgiveness, he brings healing, he brings cleansing. Okay? Now, I, uh, what that means uh, uh, for us is here that he, what Messiah does for us is he takes us the way we are and he removes the, not only the uh, theological aspect of this, not only the, he removes the, the, you know, the sin that we can't see. I can't see the sin itself, like a burr, you know, uh, running through weeds. I can't see it, but I know that he removes it, and now, I'm, uh, and now I'm, I have forgiveness of my sins, but he cleans us. He removes whatever shame before him there may be. And that is very important to the woman who touched his garment and to the man with the skin disease, Okay. That what he does is he not only heals it, but he removes the shame. He brings cleansing to the conscience, cleansing to the heart. And that is very, very important to us. You know, in uh, Isaiah uh, chapter 54, when was the last time you read that, right? Uh, it's very interesting. After Isaiah 53, the next two chapters, 54 and 55, is almost like an altar call. It's like inviting people to come and embrace the suffering servant from Isaiah 53. When you read 54 and 55, it, it's a call to come. Like, come to the waters, you know, receive the forgiveness. So in Isaiah chapter 54, right at the beginning, it says, right after Isaiah 53, the very next thing is, Shout for joy, O barren one, you who have borne no child. Break forth into joy, shouting and cry aloud. You who have not travide, you know, we all know what that means. Well, I've heard about it anyway. Uh, for the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out the curtains of your dwelling. Spare not, lengthen your cords and straighten your pegs. Uh, if you go down to verse 4, Fear not, for you will not be put to shame. Neither feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced. But you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more, for the, your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Okay? And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. And so there, uh, there we see, and there are plenty of other, of other passages uh, that, uh, that speak of that. In Hebrews chapter 12, we read uh, that Yeshua took the shame on himself took the shame on himself. We read in uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 2. Uh, and that is, you know, that uh, we, um, in which you, we all uh, formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind. But God, being rich in mercy, became, because of his great love with which he has loved us, 
while we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Messiah. He moves us from shame to praise. Uh, and it's so important that we recognize that, that not only does he forgive us, but that he removes the shame. And so just uh, when we think about the Seder and we think about that, we need to think also, just finishing up here, in terms of in our own lives of recognizing that in Messiah, shame is removed. But the fact is, is that for most of us, the way that we encounter God oftentimes is through other people is through our relationships with other people. Uh, and uh, therefore, when we uh, are, uh, uh, um, feel when we've sinned or when we feel that we ha have been shamed, it's important for us here to uh, embrace people and to forgive and to be a cleansing agent in the lives of other people. And to help people experience deliverance, just like we do with the Seder. You know, we, many of us experience that maror, the bitterness of slavery. What we tend to do is oftentimes heap shame upon people. But we need to be agents of cleansing and, and agents of deliverance. And uh, live out that life of Yeshua, who was humiliated for us. He was humiliated so that we could be cleansed. May we be agents of that. May we be Passover in the lives of people around us. May we help people to move from shame to praise. And if our little, if our, not our little ones, if our teens were here right now, I would go to town on this. And that is what we write on, uh, you know, social media. And when we talk about bullying and, and, uh, you know, saying bad things about, uh, about other people, that is, that is a horrible thing. Heaping shame, undeserved, doesn't matter, on, on people, that what we are called to do, we're called to be like Yeshua and to be people who bring cleansing and bring healing. And may that be uh, for us, you know, a May Passover this year, be an experience from us, for us personally of moving from shame to praise in our own relationship with God and others. A lot more to say, but we'll stop there. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you, uh, uh, God, for uh, this, uh, this time of year when we can remember moving from shame to praise. And may it truly be for us uh, a, a marvelous time a God of redemption, of release, of deliverance, of cleansing, Lord. Uh, and we thank you in Yeshua's name.